One of my favorite practice things to do is to watch my mind when something goes um, quote-unquote wrong (laughs) or it goes um, not the way that I expected or wanted it to do. And it's um, quite predictable, actually, how it responds. So I brought my iPad in here because um, there's a quote that I wanted to share. I couldn't find it in my paper, so I found it online. But the, it, apparently the um, Internet doesn't make it into the hall. So, um, so I was watching my mind, and, it, and what, it, what it does when something like this happens is it first says, this isn't happening. That's its, that's its first response, always. So it's like delusion is the first response. This isn't happening. So <laughs> I had a few moments, this isn't happening, this isn't happening. And then, um, and then next comes, um, I don't like that this is happening. <laughs> I don't like that this is happening. And so I was watching my mind, and then it was like, oh, okay, all right, it's happening, it's fine. Um, and it's just a little thing, right? Like whether, I mean, I like this quote a lot. You guys don't get to hear it now. Um, it's a small thing, but it's basically how the mind, um, I think, almost always responds to something unpleasant. We're talking about something unpleasant in this case. It's not happening. It's not happening. I don't like it. I don't like it. And then eventually equanimity or peace or acceptance And so this is a little thing, but then there's the big things too, right? And the little things are good practice for the big things. You all on retreat have had many, many, many little things (laughs) that you have gotten to practice with. Sometimes the mind uh, is kind of shameless in what it will consider a problem. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But... uh, uh, it's it's good practice opportunity. Hmm. And then, of course, I had to check one more time just to make sure <laughs> that it was still happening. It still is. There's no internet. <laughs> hmm. So here's a question that was put in the basket. And with my um, new eyeglasses that I told you that I got, they actually um, are not quite right. And I'm getting them adjusted. <laughs> so this might, let's see how this goes. Um, <laughs> this may seem an odd question to ask after nearly three months of doing it. <laughs> but in what mysterious way do sitting, moving, hearing, touching, much thinking, and the breath, walking, noting, lifting, moving, placing, and more thinking, and eating, moving, lifting, chewing, tasting, placing the knife, fork, and the spoon on the plate, and the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or indifference of all this, transform hatred, greed, and delusion (laughs) in let me finish. <laughs> Into compassion, kindness, generosity, and clear knowing of reality. I'm sensing some of you may have had the same question <laughs> come up at different times, right? 
why are we doing all this? Like, or how does it lead to the transformation that we're hoping for? I hope this talk will answer that question. I'll just give a little prelude. <laughs> so first of all, these um, uh, experiences that are listed and connecting with them is really trying to help us um, get in touch with reality, to get here. It's like my first talk on thought-based reality and sense-based reality. It's all about arriving um, in this world rather than living in the dream worlds that uh, we fabricate. So that's the first thing. And then when we get here, it's about seeing where there's clinging and what facilitates letting go. That's really it. That's all of it. And so um, he mentioned greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are our arguments with reality. And so when we get here, we connect with reality, then we start to see what arguments we have with reality. The basic arguments being, I want to keep what's pleasant. I don't want to experience what's unpleasant. And I'd like to space out and not really be here because it's too intense. Something like that is a basic argument. So we work out um, our relationship with greed, hatred, and delusion. We work out these arguments with reality, and we see how we can shift from arguing with reality to cooperating with reality, or to living in harmony with the way things are rather than resisting the way things are. So as we do this, as we learn this um, cooperation with reality, basically the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion lessen. You could say that's how we cooperate with, cooperate with reality. They, that works all together. So the force of these three roots of suffering lessons, the dominance of these forces in our minds begins to um, become uh, more spacious, less uh, dense. Or you could say that the heart and the mind open, that the, these protections, you can see greed, hatred, and delusion as protections from reality or arguments, whichever way you want to go. Um, but as they lessen, the heart, the mind open. And what's there when the heart and mind open are these qualities that he mentioned at the end, the transformed qualities, right? There's compassion and kindness and generosity and true knowing of reality. I think that was a pretty good sum up of uh, how, <laughs> how it all works. So a lot of our practice is working with these three roots of suffering that you could say get in the way of the um, more beautiful, skillful, and wholesome qualities of heart and mind that are also part of our makeup. <laughs> but when greed, hatred, and aversion uh, and delusion are there, they're, they're hidden. They're not, they don't have room to manifest. So this talk will, will be a little bit about that process and about uh, developing and strengthening the quality of equanimity. 
And so Dara began talking about this on Wednesday in various guises. Yesterday you had equanimity as a Brahma Vihara. There's actually 10 kinds of equanimity. I could read you the list, but I don't know if it would make a lot of sense. Six-factored equanimity, equanimity as a divine abiding, equanimity as an enlightened factor, equanimity of energy, equanimity about formations, equanimity of jhana. So there's a lot of different kinds of equanimity. It's a very um, beautiful quality that has a a very um, strong place in, in our practice. And so most of you are aware that we're approaching the end of the retreat, and most likely your mind, heart, are um, wandering a bit more. There's more thought. Perhaps there's less stillness. It's a great time to practice equanimity. The coming days, going home. Basically, equanimity is a practice of, of accommodating to change. And so we're in this process right now of of more intensified change, more obvious change. This is the way things are right now. One of my favorite equanimity phrases when I find myself arguing with reality, this is the way things are right now. I offer it to you in the coming days when you find that uh, you have complaints about the way reality is manifesting in your own heart and mind or in the um, world around you. So equanimity, a great practice for in retreat, a great practice for going home. So the question is, how do we engage with a wholehearted cooperation with reality? One way we can define define equanimity, or I call it developing a graceful heart. And I think of gracefulness as the ability to move and flow with the changes of this world, including everything. And perhaps we can think of gracefulness like a bamboo. We, desc- we described equanimity as a mountain, and, and it's often described that way as uh, this steady, steady energy like a mountain. But we can also describe it like bamboo. Bamboo that can sway with the wind, can survive long or strong storms without being up, uprooted because of its flexible quality, its quality of being able to go with what's happening. And so our Vipassana practice is about learning gracefulness by studying the heart's response, the mind's response to changing circumstances. And what we see is the places in our hearts and minds that are rigid with grasping, rigid with aversion, or rigid with delusion. And we soften them. And we learn to bend with circumstances. I was looking at some of the notes I had on um, the anti-dharma, as I call it, (laughs) what's out there. (laughs) Airplane flights are a good place to find anti-dharma. 
<laughs> one airplane flight, there was a napkin. It said, um, open happiness at cokesummer.com. <laughs> On a nice Delta uh, flight napkin, 20% equals 100% happier, save 20% on eligible in-flight food. <laughs> McDonald's, the simple joy of obsession. <laughs> McRibs. <laughs> it goes on and on. <laughs> I saw a huge sign in Thailand once in Bangkok, just huge, dominating the um, skyline. Joy is BMW. <laughs> Honda has a nice tagline. Something new to crave. Crave.honda.org. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's what you have to look forward to. <laughs> so the Buddhist idea of um, happiness is a little different than this, and acquiring something or, or um, acquiring pleasant experiences or... Um, pleasant things. That's kind of our conventional understanding, right? That that's how we're happy. If we can just add up the pleasant moments and not have too many unpleasant, kind of get rid of them, um, then we'll be happy. I hope you know by now why that is a failing strategy. Because we live in a world of change. We can't peg things down. We can't make them stay. This is the way things are. And if we peg our happiness on conditions, on racking up those pleasant things and getting rid of the unpleasant, we're going to be restless. We're not going to know peace because we're going to have to always be scrambling. And there's a way that you may have noticed that in your mind, that the mind, it, it scrambles. <laughs> it scrambles trying to figure out how to be happy in this changing world, how to make these strategies work of grasping and aversion and delusion. And then maybe you've also tasted the mind where those forces have lessened and there's this ability to flow with what's happening and, and you taste... Um, the Buddhist kind of happiness, which is peace. So we don't go there very willingly. <laughs> we don't go to peace very willingly. We're kind of kicked and we're dragged kicking and screaming the whole way. Here's a story from um, Joseph Goldstein's book, uh, Mindfulness, that I think kind of describes the spiritual path. In India, I was living in a little hut about six feet by seven feet. It had a canvas flap instead of a door. I was sitting on my bed meditating, and a cat wandered in and plopped down on my lap. I took the cat and tossed it out the door. Ten seconds later, it was back on my lap. We got into a sort of dance, this cat and I. I tossed it out because I was trying to meditate to get it enlightened. But the cat kept returning. I was getting more and more irritated, more and more annoyed with the persistence of the cat. Finally, after about a half hour of this coming in and tossing out, I had to surrender. There was nothing else to do. There was no way to block the door. 
I sat there. The cat came back in and it got on my lap. But I did not do anything. I just let go. Thirty seconds later, the cat got up and walked out. (laughs) That's kind of how it works. (laughs) Uh, We resist, we resist, we resist. Finally we go, okay, and then things shift. And yet we can't get there until we're done resisting, right? Resist mindfully. That's my suggestion. (laughs) At a certain point, it becomes obvious that we're fighting with reality. And so we learn um, to surrender, a kind of gracefulness and surrender. So gracefulness is this non-resistance to the way things are. And part of that practice is the practice of resistance to the way things are, of engaging with this resistance with mindfulness so we can learn how to let go. So we get a lot of chances to practice with resistance. Resistance perhaps manifesting as hardness against what's true. Or resistance, perhaps, um, manifesting as um, exile, tossing that cat out the door. Or resistance manifesting as craving for something that's not here, something else to do it. Resistance, our hearts and minds saying no to reality. And so when we notice this happening in our practice, we get the chance to see if there's some way to soften or to surrender or to open to or to cooperate with the way things are. And as I said, we don't go easily because delusion tells us that we can control life, that that's going to (laughs) work. And grasping and aversion tell us that too. If you're really listening, listen to them. They're like, you can do this. (laughs) If you hate this enough, you can get rid of it. (laughs) If you want this enough, you can make it stay. That's the story. And um, we fall for it over and over again because we hope it's true. There's a secret belief that that it really will work. One time I was talking um, with a, a, a trainee of mine. Um, we, uh, when I was teaching, I was giving a talk on clinging, I think. So I was talking about, we were talking it over in dinner, and she says, I like clinging. It makes me feel better. Kind of. <laughs> I like clinging. It makes me feel better. It kind of, kind of. <laughs> she added on that kind of, which is really the the. the key word of the whole thing. But yeah, clinging is like, it, 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 is, it gives us the delusion that we can control. So we like that delusion, kind of. The problem is there's no peace there. There's no rest. Rest, what we really want, what our weary hearts and minds want. Rest and peace. So reality itself 
tells us that taking refuge in control, control through greed, hatred, or delusion, is a recipe for stress and alienation. Reality teaches us that. Reality has been teaching you all for weeks that very thing. And as we start to see the stress with our usual strategies for happiness, start to see the stress of grasping, the stress of aversion, the stress of delusion, (coughs) we slowly start to let go and explore the possibility of cooperating with reality. And a big part of this cooperation with reality is is trust and confidence. So we start to learn this trust and confidence in our capacity to be in touch with reality, to be in touch with the way things are. So all of our practice here, the seeing, the hearing, the, the moving, the lifting, the placing, the chewing, the tasting, the the smelling, the thinking, all of it, um, all the things that note listed, happening over and over and over here, that's reality, right? And we notice the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We see how we're conditioned by the feeling tone to grasp, push away, or space out. And we start to see that perhaps there's a possibility of not responding in that conditioned way. And so at times, as I said, there may be times when we, can, um, when we don't resist reality and there's this peace and we enjoy that peace, we acclimate to that peace, we get to know it. And then there's times where there's that resistance and reactivity, the grasping and aversion, and we get to know that. And we start to see through it a little bit. It's that poking the holes in the fabric. We start to, um, you know, it's like every moment of mindfulness slowly starts to transform our understanding of greed and aversion starts to weaken the power and the dominance in the mind and the heart. So what we start to find is this sense of poise, our gracefulness in this very alive engagement with unfolding circumstances. So it's not detachment. This is one of the... um, myths of Buddhist practice or Buddhism is that it's somehow we're going to detach and nothing is going to bother us. <laughs> no, it's, it's a lively engagement with life. There's a great story written by um, somebody named Joel Levy about Paul Reps, uh, a Zen master, one of the big Zen masters, Western Zen masters of recent time. He's, he's died, who died a while ago. One day over tea, my friend and mentor, the late Paul Reps, shared the following story of his studies in the Orient. 
At one point, reps had traveled to Japan with plans to visit a respected Zen master in Korea. He went to the passport office in Japan to apply for his visa and was politely informed that his request was denied due to the war that had just broken out in Korea. Rep sat down in the waiting area. He had come thousands of miles with the plan to study with this Korean master. He was frustrated and disappointed. What did he do? He practiced what he preached. Reaching into his bag, Reps mindfully pulled out his thermos and poured himself a cup of tea. With a calm and focused mind, he watched the steam rising and dissolving into the air. He smelled its fragrance, tasted its tasty bitter flavor, and enjoyed its warmth and wetness. Finishing his tea, he put his cup back on his thermos, put his thermos in his bag, and pulled out a pen and paper on, on, upon which he wrote a haiku poem. Mindfully, he walked back to the clerk behind the counter, bowed, and presented him with his poem and his passport. The clerk read it and looked up, deep, looked up deeply into the quiet strength in Rep's eyes. Smiling, he bowed with respect, picked up Rep's visa, and stamped it for passage to Korea. The haiku read, Drinking a cup of tea, I stopped the war. When I gave that talk once at a um, retreat here, I got a note from a yogi, her own haiku. Eating my orange, I fought a war. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's like that. <laughs> so how do we develop this quality of equanimity, of cooperation? I've been talking about that. Often we kind of wish it could be willed, and so sometimes we try to will it. It's like, I'm going to accept this, or I accept this. And, um, I mean, we all try that first. <laughs> Why not, right? <laughs> um, it doesn't work so well. <laughs> so sometimes um, we have this idea, like we're supposed to be equanimous. We're meditators. We're supposed to be equanimous. And um, I call that spiritual correctness. <laughs> And it's kind of a trap because um, we have this kind of lofty idea of how we should be, then we try to fit ourselves into how we should be, and then we get frustrated because we're not really connecting with reality, we're trying to make something up. And it doesn't acknowledge the actual experience that we're having. So equanimity is more inclusive than that. Any experience is okay, we acknowledge that. And we live through, like I was talking about the resistance, we live through the resistance. We kind of bumble our way into equanimity. Mm, 
there's no shortage of opportunities to develop equanimity, to work with changing circumstances of life. Trying to decide which ones I want to tell you. (laughs) I think one of the times that I learned the most about equanimity was one time when I was um, traveling, and I'd been traveling for 16 days. I was ready to go home. And um, I arrived at the airport, put my card in the machine, and the machine um, politely informed me that I was too late. Uh, uh, As far as I could tell, it was 44 minutes before the flight, and I needed to be 45. And um, they wouldn't let me on the plane. I I tried. I tried that first (laughs) to see if I could still get on, but it was sold out, so they kind of had a good way of bumping me. So I was um, not happy because it was the last flight home from Portland, Portland, Oregon. It was the last flight home, and I had a major challenge on my hand, like where was I going to stay that night, and how was I going to get home, and I was really tired. So um, I did what I had to do and as far as getting on a flight the next day. And then I sat down, and I was, I was really pretty furious at the airlines. So it was like anger, anger, so angry. And then there was this little voice over here that said, um, Rebecca, you're a Dharma teacher. Shouldn't you be doing better than this? <laughs> I just taught a retreat after all. <laughs> and then the other part of me was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not doing better than this, and that's okay. And I really like had the sense of um, it was really okay to be exactly where I was at. And so every once in a while I'd be like, hmm, am I equanimous yet? Nope. just sat there for a while finally am I equanimous yet you know I'm getting there (laughs) you know and then finally it was like okay it was all right and then I called a student and I had a nice dinner with her and she let me stay at her place and it was all fine um but there was something for me about the the acceptance of non-equanimity that was really powerful it's like, and I call it radical equanimity. It's, it's beyond having to be equanimous. It's really about um, being able to accept and connect with whatever is the truth. Then there was another time, so air, I shouldn't tell too many airport stories, should I? Um, <laughs> so another time I was flying back from Burma, and I'd just done a three-week retreat in Upper Burma, and um, my mind was sharp. I was really, I was, I was in a good place. So I get to the airport in um, Bangkok. I was flying to, to Thailand, um, no, in um, Rangoon. I was flying to Bangkok where I was given a talk that night, so I did need to get to Bangkok. So I go to the airport. I go up, you know, I give them my passport. They did that thing that you know is at the beginning of problems. <laughs> they got a perplexed look on their face as they were looking through the, you know, list of people on the airplane. And so then they're like, can we see your itinerary? So I hand them the itinerary, and they look at it, and they're like, this flight went yesterday. And um, you get kind of complicated, all the date and time changes and everything. So anyway, it's like, this flight went yesterday. So I watched my mind. I was like, this isn't happening. (laughs) This isn't happening. I don't like this. I don't like this. What do I do next? 
So that was the five moments. It was similar to what happened up here with the Wi-Fi, right? It's like, equanimity. It went that fast. And then the question is, how do I respond? So this making peace with the way things are is not the end of the story. It's like, then what's the skillful thing to do? So I asked myself, how do I respond here? And it was actually possible to buy another plane ticket that wasn't astronomically expensive, and I got to, I got on the plane by buying another ticket. Um, love to watch the mind. <laughs> and some things are little, like airplane trips or Wi-Fi, right? But they prepare us for the bigger things, the challenges of life, the bigger challenges, like the loss of somebody we care about or the loss of a job, or chronic illness, death. (laughs) I've learned more about equanimity from health challenges than um, just about anything else. Fear, sin, master those chronic illnesses, right? Or those health problems. They they don't go away because you want them to. number of years ago, like 30, is it? No, 25 years ago. Yeah, About 25 years ago, I went through a period of bad health. I kind of fell into the categories of um, kind of too sensitive a body in a toxic world kind of category. One of those, you know, kind of vague ones that we get sometimes. And um, so I'd have days when I'd feel relatively normal, and then I'd have days when I felt um, my symptoms and felt off and... Um, it was at first I really fell into both of those. So like I'd have an off day and it'd be like, Oh my god, you know, I'm gonna wind up on disability and barely able to walk, you know, I'd go all the way to into you know, horrible scenarios, lots of aversion to what's happening. And then on the days that I'd feel normal, I'd be like, Oh great, I'm healed, there's no problem anymore. This is great <laughs> And then what would happen, right? It'd be like then it, it would I would have um, quote unquote difficult days again, and it was like this roller coaster ride. Right? I'd be up and down and up and down, and finally I'm like, I gotta, I gotta practice with this. Um, and I really started to look at the attachment to the good days. That's where I started. Actually, it was really helpful. So I, I started to see when I would have a good day, I'd be like, oh, this is pleasant, and it's not going to last. So allowing myself to enjoyment, enjoy it, but really working with the attachment and you know, the attachment in the forms of I'm never going to feel unhealthy again, or the delusions, all of that. And then when I had the days that were challenging, be like, oh, this is unpleasant. Can I hold unpleasantness? It's not going to last. And over time, I healed. And I think partly part of the healing was the, um, the lessening of stress of all the extra suffering that I put on top of what was happening. That was such a um, learning experience, a couple years. Mm. So much to talk about. Another um, experience that was a big uh, 
equanimity practice for me was a couple of years ago where I lived before. Uh, the guy next door to us uh, clear-cut all the, um, the trees. And uh, not only was it just heartbreaking for me for these trees to be cut, they were also our protection from a, from a busy, um, like, nature preserve. So the house, our house became much more exposed. And the, tr- and the cutting went on for a year. <laughs> and so I really had to work with, like, um, a lot of challenging emotions that were coming up. It's like these trees were my friends and I was hearing them cut down day after day and it took a long time because it was a very unethical logger. And Long story, he moved the boundary lines, cut down some of our trees. I mean, it was just as long a nightmare. And um, at one point I was walking in the woods and I was just feeling this agitation. I realized that there was so much resistance to what was happening, right? And then I just was like... I let my heart break. It was like, oh, heartbreak, heartbreak, heartbreak. And like it was okay. So sometimes we just have to let our hearts break and see that that we can survive that, that that's okay. Because sometimes life is heartbreaking. I could rest then. I could rest when I opened to heartbreak. And then afterwards, like I was like, what can I do here? There was very little I could do. But I said to the trees and the land, I'm like, when, when the cutting's over, I promise to come sit with you and to um, try to, to help you heal. And so they cut it all, cut it down all the trees. And so I went to sit, um, kind of at the boundary where my, uh, the trees on my land were um, very exposed, which was hard for them because they were used to being part of a big community. And all of a sudden they were exposed. And so I was sitting there, and I was like going to send them metta or compassion. That was my plan. So I'm kind of sitting there, and I'm starting to do that, and I'm feeling this resistance, like coming from the trees and the rocks and the land, and and they're like. We don't want your metta. <laughs> we want you to sit with us in our pain. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I did that. Again, it was just that real, like letting in the heartbreak, letting in the pain. I just sat with the trees and the land. And then at a certain point, it was like, okay, now we want your metta. And uh, I, again, that process was one of like not fighting reality that was finally like, this really is the way it is, and it's okay. And then the next spring, there was new things growing. Life continued. Ryokan, Japanese hermit poet. Although from the beginning I knew the world is impermanent, not a moment passes when my sleeves are dry. I love this poem. (laughs) 
Although from the beginning I knew the world is impermanent, not a moment passes when my sleeves are dry. There's such um, a, an engagement with life there, the, the tears. And yet there's peace. So we find through this um, non-resistance, through this cooperation or this lively engagement with unfolding circumstances, we find the peace and the connection that our hearts yearn for. I'm thinking of another time last year when I woke up one morning and I was feeling kind of edgy. Usually that's a sign to me that there's something I don't want to (laughs) feel. So I was doing my practice. Um, I was doing a kind of compassion practice at that point. And um, so what I realized that I was feeling uh, was uh, a really deep fear. And I realized it was triggered by something I'd heard on the radio the day before. You don't need the details. And so I, so it was like, oh, I let myself feel this, this deep fear. And then it was followed by hatred. And I let my heart feel hatred. I didn't feed either one, but I I let my heart feel and gave room and air to these experiences, which I had been holding at bay and resisting. And then um, just through that process of bringing awareness, uh, it transformed. Awareness is such a beautiful quality, has so much power. And so that, then I noticed that these, um, these uh, unhelpful, un- unwholesome emotions started to decrease. And then I, I wound up in this place where I felt compassion and kindness for myself, for others, for this world. And it came through this non-resistance to what was happening. So our heart is often kind of um, squashed and contorted and imprisoned by our demands on its performance. (laughs) And I'm really one for give your heart the space it needs to feel what it needs to feel and do it mindfully. So there is a difference between feeling hatred and feeding it that I'm not recommending, (laughs) feeding it through stories. And there's a way for giving the heart room for hatred and letting it feel with mindfulness and letting the mindfulness transform that experience. So whatever your favorite emotion is, that was one example there. (laughs) I remember one time a student um, was at our center, my little center, about an hour from here, and she was like... um, Like, I have this pain in my body. I've been working with it. I'm trying to accept it. And I said, um, perhaps you're hating it? <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, 
hate it mindfully. You know, because trying to accept it isn't, wasn't her experience. And she tried that and she said, oh, okay, that gave it room to move. Another time, I remember a student saying something about anger and um, like trying to find different ways to work with anger and what could I do um, to suggest to help with it. And often when we get questions like that, the subcontext is, how can I get rid of it? <laughs> so I said, give it some space. It just wants space. And he tried it and he was like, oh yeah, okay. So non-resistance to the way things are. So we learn the signs of a heart that's resisting reality, the signs of um, loss of gracefulness, such as hardness or agitation or inflexibility, rigidity, demands, conditions. And then we also learn the, the signs of gracefulness, the graceful heart, spaciousness, ease, flexibility, kindness, lack of demands joy. So our minds get um, much more flexible and able to bend like the bamboo. Here's a quote from Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) What day is it today? What day is it? Asked Winnie the Pooh. It's today, squeaked Piglet. My favorite day, said Pooh. Hmm. Here's a story from one of my students. She said, your Winnie the Pooh story reminded me of what my daughter said when she was three or four years old. I gave her a coin when we were leaving the store to put in the small gumball machine. I told her to turn the knob and then asked her what color she wanted. Her reply, I want the color I get. Hmm. Here's a great uh, story from Pema Chodron from the Shambhala Sun. It doesn't totally fit, but I just love it. I mean, it kind of fits. I could make it fit if I worked on it, but (laughs) it's close enough. (laughs) Years back, I took a trip alone with my granddaughter, who was six years old at the time. It was such an embarrassing experience because she was being extremely difficult. She was saying no about everything, and I kept losing it with this little angel whom I adore. So I said, okay, Alexandria, this is between you and Grandma, right? You're not going to tell anybody about what's going on. You know all those pictures you've seen of Grandma on the front of books? Anyone you see carrying around one of those books, you do not tell them about this. (laughs) The fact that she wrote that in a magazine, is (laughs) there's some flexibility there. The point is that when your cover is blown, it's embarrassing. 
When you practice meditation, getting your cover blown is just as embarrassing as it ever was, but you're glad to see where you're still stuck because you would like to die with no more big surprises. On your deathbed, when you thought you were saint whoever, you don't want to find out that the nurse completely pushes you over the wall with frustration and anger. (laughs) Not only do you die angry at the nurse, but you die disillusioned with your whole being. So if you ask why we meditate, I would say it's so that we become more and more flexible and tolerant to the pleasant present moment. You could be irritated with the nurse when you're dying and say, you know, that's just the way life is. You let it move through you. You can feel settled with this, and hopefully you can even die laughing. It was just your luck to get this nurse. (laughs) You can say, this is absurd. (laughs) See, it fits, right? More or less, yeah. Here's an equanimity story from um, Thich Nhat Hanh. So a number of you know, and most of you probably know that he had a, a stroke a few, year, few years ago. And um, slow recovery, he still, I believe, uh, he has some um, challenges still left. But it says that over time, He found small ways of communicating non-verbally and finally saying a few words. These are the words that he said after having this devastating stroke, right? In, out, happy. Thank you. So happy. That's uh, flexibility, (laughs) cooperation with reality. So I want to move on just a few minutes to talk about um, cooperation with reality or accepting the way things are um, does not mean not responding and it does not mean detachment. So if, if we find that our meditation practice is making us more detached or more self-absorbed, then we're doing something wrong and we should check it out with a teacher because that's not the goal. There's a, there's the risk. I would say it's kind of a risk that we can use meditation that way to kind of detach and find peace through detachment. That's the easier way to find peace, but it's not real peace because even detachment has stress, the stress of being detached. <laughs> um, there's the other risk that we become self-absorbed, that, that, that we concentrate so much on our own problems and what's wrong with us and how we're going to fix it and how we're going to be happy that we forget about the world around us. So detachment, self-absorption, they're, they're um, occupational hazards that we need to watch out for. <laughs> because a truly open heart, this unobstructed heart that that we're talking about developing or or uncovering more than anything. This heart um, is connected with the world around us and cares and wants to respond. It's responsive.
the world around us needs our love, it needs our care, and it needs our response. What we're doing here is so important, right? Learning, um, learning so we don't have any surprises on our deathbed, um, learning about um, the truth of, of the complications, the complicated human beings that we are, and the complicated heart and mind. And we're learning how to uncover and to um, access the, the beautiful qualities of our hearts, the qualities of love and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity, concentration, mindfulness, energy, joy, all of that. The world needs that. And so we get the opportunity when we leave here to have a more engaged retreat, a retreat that's engaged with the world around us and responds. Sometimes people ask me, um, uh, you know, there's so much suffering in the world. It's so challenging. Like, what do I do? How do I respond to that? And what I often say is, um, find out what you're passionate about and do something. None of us can solve all the problems in the world. But if we find where our passion lies and where we really care and engage in a way that's joyful and sustainable, that can be the natural response of our heart to be alive in this world, to have this lively engagement with life. So one of the things that I'm passionate about is climate change and and uh, protecting the earth. I'm very much an outdoorsy type person. I spend, uh, when I'm home, I spend um, an hour and a half, two hours a day outside, just really love um, this earth. And so what I... Um, have done is join or become part of an alliance called the Sugar Shack Alliance. And um, the uh, goal is to stop the construction of fossil fuel infrastructure, specifically, most specifically, pipelines. It started because they were going to put a pipeline through my town. <laughs> I'll be honest, <laughs> that's where it started. It was like, I live in Western Mass, they were going to build this big pipeline through the Western Mass. Um, into Massachusetts so that we would have enough fracked gas from Pennsylvania. Though the pipeline did continue to the export terminal on the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so there was some question about it all. <laughs> but uh, so we, the, the, the way this um, group functions is you have affinity groups. And these are groups that do nonviolent um, civil disobedience. And you do it with a group of people. And so I was part of this affinity group in my town. and. Um, we had a lot of fun. We still have fun. We're still together. So this started a couple of years ago, um, and we, at least for the time being, um, defeated the pipeline in our town. We had so much fun doing it, though. See, so we had this one thing we did is um, they already had surveyed. We knew where the pipeline was going to go, and uh, it was in the backyard of one person. So um we decided to build this replica of Henry David Thoreau's cabin right where the pipeline was going to go. 
And so then our town supervisor says, our town building um, inspector says, well, it's really small. You don't need a permit to build it. But if you get a permit to build it, you have to have a permit to knock it down. Or like, give us a permit. <laughs> and so then all these other people planned to build like these little cottages, Henry David Rose um, things. So that was lots of fun. And um, then, then that pipeline um, was stopped, at least for now. Then we decided we were going to continue our work and help other groups around the state. And so then we went to the state forest um, in southwest uh, Massachusetts where they were building um, a storage pipeline for the frac gas in a state forest, and overriding our constitution. We lost that one, that one they built. Um, so part of the, the our engagement in the world is like we do what we can and then we have to be able to hold that that things don't always turn out the way we wished but there's something so powerful for me in in acting and doing something and it it um it has a sense of alignment of living with care and concern and connection and then i met all these people in my town i didn't know so now i have all these friends that live nearby Instead of having to drive 40 miles, um, 40 minutes across the valley burning fossil fuel, <laughs> now I have friends that live two miles from me. And um, it's really heartwarming. It's all heartwarming. The other thing I feel passionate about is anti racism work. And um, as I probably mentioned before, here at IMS, I'm one of the trainers for our current teacher training program. That's uh, three quarters um, people of color who are people who identify as, as a person of color. Oh, I'm so fortunate. It's so much fun. It's so beautiful. It's so heartwarming. So we find what we care about, and um, we put our hearts into it. And that's part of our practice too. So equanimity isn't doesn't stop with things are as they are. Oh well. <laughs> no, things are as they are. And given the clearer heart that I have, because I've worked to make peace with this is how it is, out of that clearer heart and mind, it's like how do I respond? What is the way to engage? And how do I do it in a way that's sustainable and the heart um, can stay joyful even with all the heartbreak in our world? That's part of our practice too. Because it's a heartbreaking world. I'm going to say that. I'm going to name that. It's a heartbreaking world. And it's a beautiful world. And equanimity holds both of those. It holds both of those. So I'm going to end with a poem. It's a little bit... um, I'm going to read it because I want to read it. (laughs) It's connected, but it's, it's, it's one step further. 
This is um, an enlightenment poem, or enlightenment story, about Tejitsu, a Japanese abbess from the 1700s. It's from the book Women of the Way by Sally Tistel. Standing on the small porch of Hakujan, she saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath, followed by the shadow of a hungry crow. And she saw that the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising, arose, abided, and fell away. And that abiding, arose, abided, and fell away. And she saw that knowing, arose, abided, and fell away. And then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Let's sit for a minute. And then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean upon stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.